This is what it says in Luke chapter 23. Two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are justly punished, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Father God, as we meet here tonight and we remember, I pray that you will give all of us from youngest to oldest, from those who are brand new to those who've been here since the beginning of our church, pray that you would give us all a sense of having come into your presence with gratitude, a sense of having stopped in awe to ponder what you've done and to appreciate all the more the grace that you offer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love these nights that we gather here like this. Nobody has to come. The only people who do come are those who really want to come. It's kind of an intimate time where uh, we gather and we think back, we wonder, we share communion together, we think about grace, maybe in ways that we don't at other times. Shortly before my grandmother Mullen died, she was my mother's mother, she sat up in her hospital bed with family all gathered around her, and she wanted us to sing a song. And uh, my mom was the head nurse on that floor. She said, no, 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 we can't do that. There's just too much going on here. So my grandmother said, okay, let's say the 23rd Psalm. And so there's a whole entourage of us. And my grandmother led off, and she said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we all joined in with her. And it was pretty loud. And then... We finished out the prayer together with the final words of that psalm. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And with that, my grandmother took a big sigh and she laid down and closed her eyes. And five minutes later, she was gone. It's uncanny. I think back on that from time to time. My grandmother, in her last words, said, and I shall live in the house of the Lord forever. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when she woke up, she was there. Question. Have you ever thought about what your final words will be? 
Would they be gracious? Would they be funny? Would they be words of wisdom or words of pain? Would they be the kind of words that your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren will tell other people about because there's just something so profound that rolled off your tongue in that moment? Most of us don't think about that, so we're not really prepared for what the last words will be. But tonight on Good Friday, we're going to focus on the final message of Jesus. Several of Jesus' messages were very, very memorable. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse that comes in Matthew 24 and 25. He's sitting on the mountain shortly before uh, all the events that lead to the cross would unfold. Or other stories that he told, the parable of the prodigal son, for instance. Tonight our topic is the final sermon of Jesus. And traditionally, there are seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. Now, it's interesting that three of them only appear in Luke's gospel, three of them only appear in John's gospel, and then there's one that only appears in Matthew and Mark. So there's no one gospel that includes all of the final six statements that Jesus made from the cross. But we're going to look at the overall message when you combine the essential themes of each one. I'm going to do this kind of quickly and roll through them, but I think you'll see where I'm going when we get to the end of this. So the final sermon of Jesus starts with Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. As Jesus hung on the cross, Luke offers us a panoramic view. And Jesus hung on a cross. He's between two criminals on their own crosses. One of them begins to hurl insults at Jesus, telling him to save himself and them too, Crowds stand by watching helplessly, while some of the religious leaders were told were sneering at him, mocking him, joining in the insults. Surveying this scene, Jesus begins to speak to God the Father. Although Jesus had taken a beating worse than that given to the other criminals, although Jesus was suffering greatly from his cross, I find it fascinating that his thoughts in that moment focused on the spiritual condition of his tormentors. Isn't that amazing? At that moment, one primary thing was on his mind. Forgiveness. If I had to boil this part, this opening salvo of his final message down to one word, it would be forgiveness. If it was two words, it would be undeserved forgiveness. He was asking for forgiveness for people who weren't thinking about that, weren't pleading for it, weren't asking God for it, weren't even conscious for it. But while Jesus was suffering on the cross, his heart was filled with mercy and forgiveness. The second statement that he made is, today you will be with me in paradise. So think of it here. Again, here's Jesus on the middle cross with criminals on either side. Mark's gospel reports that they both hurled insults at Jesus. Luke tells us that one of the criminals hurled insults at Jesus. More or less, he taunted him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, it's not a problem that one gospel says that both of them were and another gospel says one of them were. It's pretty easy to reconcile two reports. It's possible that initially both criminals were insulting Jesus, but Luke alone reports that one of them seemed to have a change of heart. And he stops and he begins to challenge the other one saying, what are you doing? Think about this. Look at what's going on here around us. Look at this Jesus character. This convicted man had watched Jesus respond and now he makes a confession. 
in rebuke to his fellow rebel, he says, don't you fear God. We are getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's a kind of confession. And then he makes a request. He looks over at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I have, I have a feeling that it wasn't delivered that smoothly. Here's a guy who's on a cross. He's also dying. And part of the nature of the cross is it makes it very hard to breathe. So he's probably choking out those words a phrase at a time. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it was that request which prompted Jesus' second statement from the cross. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We go back to that question. What was on Jesus' mind at that moment? In these final hours, he was promising salvation and heaven to one more person. In his most trying hours, Jesus' heart was focused on saving others and offering them a place of reward and rest in paradise. Why does this matter today, all these thousands of years later? I often meet people who fall into one of two traps when they think about Jesus. Some are convinced that they are fine by themselves and they don't need the grace of God. I'm fine, Paul. You got your religious stuff. All those wackos that meet with you at North River, you know, they, they need something, but I'm fine the way I am. Or there are others who are convinced themselves that they're too far gone and beyond any hope from God. Ever, ever meet people like that? I do every once in a while. Oh, I, I've thought about coming, you know, I'd, I'd like to be in your church and hear what you guys have to say, but I just think it's been too long. You don't know how deep it all is. I'd be a hypocrite if I walked in now and began to change. On the cross, Jesus rewards two responses. He hears the man's repentance and reverence for God as this criminal rebukes the other guy whose insults must have been worse. And then he hears the man's faith in his request. Jesus, remember me when you come into a, your kingdom. You don't say something like that and ask something like that unless somehow you think there's some reality behind that. These are the first two things that Jesus is looking for today in us. Repentance, which means simply a change of mind. And faith, trusting in him. Here's the third statement that he makes. He looks down at the foot of the cross and he sees his mother and some of the other women who are part of his supporting entourage. And there's John, the disciple. John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says, woman, here is your son. And then he says to John, here is your mother. Have you ever wondered what that was all about? Why did Jesus do this? And what did he want us to know? Part of it is that experiencing the new life that Jesus offers changes many of our relationships. Some of you have discovered this very, very well, that there's a whole new identity that comes when you put your faith in Christ and you begin to walk with Jesus every day. And not just show up for a service once in a blue moon, but when you begin to say, Lord, I want to I walk with you. I want to I talk with you every day. I want to I pray to you. I want to look into your word, and I want it to soak into how I think and, and who I am. And we see ourselves as completely different people. 
And the disciples began to see the fledgling church that was growing as a family. And along with this new identity, this new family, there's a new sense of identity that leads into a kind of intimacy that we are capable of because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This has the power to radically transform our relationships and the way that we view Christians. Do you know that there are some of our family members and some of our neighbors and friends who absolutely do not understand the kind of close connection that many of us around here have? Why we hug each other, why we pray for each other, why we seem to care so deeply, why sometimes when somebody gets sick, we go out of our way to help when there's no blood relation. There's a spirit relation. There's a heart relation that goes deep. Love and intimacy were on Jesus' mind at this moment. Sometimes these relationships that we find here are closer than the family bonds. Think of it. Jesus had half-brothers. He could have handed off Mary to one of them and say, Okay, James, time for you to step up, buddy. But he didn't. He looked at one of the disciples, John, and he says, John, you get it. You get what this is about. His brother James would come along later after the resurrection. James would believe. James would write one of the New Testament letters, but he entrusts his mother and her care to John who gets this intimate connection. There's a fourth statement that Jesus makes. He says from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there are several theories. You probably know them about why Jesus said this. Jürgen Moltmann, brilliant German theologian, wrote deeply about the God-forsakenness of Jesus. And so I have taught on this, and others have too, with the idea that in this moment, Jesus identifies with all the pain and the suffering that is part of this world, because he goes through it too. He taught, Moltmann taught that God turned his back on Jesus because he carried our sin. And in this moment, there's the first sort of breach where God can't look at Jesus for a few hours. Others hold that Jesus was simply overwhelmed by the suffering of his soul, thinking about what he was doing, enduring this incredible pain. But yet still, there are others who note that Jesus was quoting the opening line of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus arrived, describes a person who is rejected who's suffering greatly while his tormentors openly mock him and laugh at him. They even go to the point of dividing his clothes. All this written a thousand years earlier. However, Psalm 22 ends, if you read it all the way through, with the suffering one being vindicated in righteousness. It says that future generations will be told about the Lord because of this suffering one. That future generations will proclaim his righteousness. I happen to think, and this is just me, that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 because he knew that many of the Jewish people of his time had memorized this as a messianic psalm. And they knew that he was showing them how it foretold the manner of his death, and yet it ends with this tremendous hope of vindication, a multi-generational impact that ends with hope. And Jesus was clinging to this confidence in that hope of how God would use this right to the end. 
may surprise you, but if I had to choose one word that boils or that sums up this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would be from the final verse of the chapter. That what Jesus was pointing to was future hope. The fifth statement is, I am thirsty. With this cry, we see more evidence of the full humanity of Jesus. He was dehydrated. He was thirsty. At the same time, he was fulfilling what had been written about the suffering Messiah in Psalm 69. There it says, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. The soldiers near the cross heard his cry and they put a sponge, this hyssop material on the end of a spear and they soak it in wine vinegar that must have tasted terrible and they put it up to Jesus, up to his mouth and he refused it. The symbolism there too, technically hyssop is the plant that the Jewish people used when they took the blood of the lamb on Passover and they marked the lentils of the door with blood. It's uncanny how all of these symbols seem to come back and surround the death of Jesus. And it makes us wonder, had God even used this act of the soldiers to send a signal to us about being redeemed by the blood of the ultimate lamb? And that reminds us of the cost, the price Jesus paid in redeeming his people from sin. Good Friday always, remember, always reminds us of the physical cost that Jesus paid. The sixth word that he says is, it is finished. John records that Jesus used this accounting term as he neared the end of his suffering. The Greek word is tetelestai. It was used when a debt was paid off in full. And Jesus knew that he had come to pay the debt for our sin, for all of our sin, for the world's sin. And yet, it's also a word that speaks of triumph and completion. People would use it outside of the accounting world to say, I'm done, I've completed the task, it's finished. And so it may have been that he was seeing, saying this not just about paying for sin, but I'm at the end, I, I, I've been faithful right to the last breath. On the cross, Jesus paid the full price for our redemption from our sin. That redemptive work was accomplished on the cross, but it is only applied when we personally put our faith in Christ and we acknowledge him. That's when his work on the cross gets applied and our sins are taken away. They're nailed to the cross forever and they're gone. And then there's a final statement that Jesus makes, the seventh one. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. Jesus now goes through the ultimate act of trust in God the Father. He sacrificed his life, he sacrificed his body, but he knows that his spirit is still alive. And he aims toward that hope that his body will be raised again. Jesus fully believed that God's power would raise him from the tomb. That was why he told his disciples that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer and to die and to be raised on the third day. So these words speak of reunion. He's saying, this is not the end. Father, receive my spirit. I'm still going to live. My spirit isn't dying here. Receive it. I want to be united with you, and I'm looking forward to that. Jesus had endured suffering unto death, and now he was trusting in the hope of reunion. 
This included the reunion of his body with his spirit that would come three days later when he rose from the tomb. This also included his immediate reunion with God the Father after bearing our sins on the cross. While Good Friday remembers death and the cross, it is always celebrated in the hope of redemption and reunion. So, what is the cumulative message of Jesus on the cross? I was playing around with this the other day, and, and uh, if we can show the next slide. If you take all of those terms together, we end up with this collage of dominant words. There's this new identity that leads to the intimate care for each other. There's salvation and paradise that he promised to the thief on the cross. There's the cost of his redemption. There's the triumph and completion that comes from Jesus saying, it is finished. There's the future hope. I probably should have put agony and hope together for Psalm 22. There's the opening statement that he makes, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness was on his heart. But in the center of all that is this idea that we are aiming toward reunion with God and that all this should lead in that direction. So what's the big idea of this message? I took all of these words and tried to put them into one sentence. Here's the way it came out for me. On Good Friday, Jesus focused on forgiveness, saving rebels, a new identity marked by intimate care, future hope, the cost of redemption, triumph over sin, and reunion with God. I can say it another way. On Good Friday, Jesus died to offer forgiveness, salvation, a new identity, intimate care, future hope, redemption, triumph, and reunion. These are the things that were on his mind. They're the key statements from the seven final sections of the final sermon of Jesus. See, this is why Good Friday is always celebrated not just as a solo event. It's, it's always in the anticipation of Easter being right around the corner. They are so tied together. These words from the cross capture what we remember tonight, but also capture what we're looking forward to on Sunday. We're going to celebrate communion here. And um, when we do, we, uh, we don't fence the table, so to speak, or say who can participate or who can't. But it is a declaration of faith. And so we leave that up to you uh, to do this without making it something trivial requires that you have a personal faith in Jesus. No better time to lock that in than right now. If you've been thinking about that, if you've been sitting on the fence, if you've been questioning and anticipating, no better time than to say, Lord, tonight's the night. I move my trust from the questioning category and I put it in the camp of Jesus. I'm trusting you. says that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup and he shared it, and they probably passed it all around. And he said, this is my blood which is shed for you. Drink of it in remembrance of me. They had no idea what he fully meant because he hadn't gone to the cross yet. They didn't understand that, the way that he was going to die. Looking back, they did. So we'd like to do something simple tonight. 
and give you time to think and ponder. And we're not going back to the old days yet. It's still somewhat of a COVID season. We're still going to use these little communion kits. But we'd like to have you, if you wish, to come up or go to the back. There are four stations in each corner. And the way we're going to do that is when you're ready, come up on the outside aisles, return through the the middle. Okay, so you're going to go this way. And uh, some of you will go to the back and you can do that. But stop and ponder. Be prayerful. When you're ready, take off the tabs. Eat the bread in remembrance of Jesus. Drink the cup. Renew your covenant with him. Let's see how God leads. I'd like to invite you back on Sunday morning. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I like the way that Tony Campolo years ago uh, described the difference between Good Friday and Sunday. Tony was a white pastor who often fellowshiped in historically black congregations. And there was one time he was asked to lead at a moment like this, and he said things the way that I normally would. You know, it's Friday, come on back on Sunday. And one of the black pastors of the church said, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's done. He started off real low, and he said, it's Friday. It's Friday. On Friday, we remember that Jesus died. But Sunday's coming. And you get louder and louder. Sunday's coming. This is Friday. Remember Friday. Come back with joy on Sunday. Father God, bless this congregation of people. You know where each of us are at in our spiritual journey. Use tonight to draw us closer to your heart and fill us with joy over the resurrection and what it means to us just as much as we treasure what Jesus did on the cross. We thank you for meeting us here tonight. In his name, amen.